You're listening to Oxide Film, written and directed by Matty O'Donovan and Tom Sayre. Hello and welcome to another episode of Oxide Film, episode four, Tom. Fantastic, we're really, yeah. We're, really we're rolling ahead. through this term. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, we have a, definitely have a mission this term. Uh, we have a lot to talk about once again. Of course uh, we do. We're going to be talking about a fantastic Stan and Ollie, um, which is a biopic on Laurel and Hardy. That's right. Uh, but before we get to that... Tom has a bit of news for us. Yeah. Um, so I film just, news then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I thought I'd just, you know, start off this week again with some film news this time. Um, so I'm going to start off with uh, a lovely chap called Lee Unkrich, who directed Toy Story 3 and Coco after 25 years of working at the studio, is leaving Pixar. Um, oh, wow, really? Uh, his main reason, he said, is to deal with family and friends and spend more time with them. Generally, that kind of tends to mean that They've had a bit of disagreement in the studio and they want to kind of sort things out without yeah. him, I suppose. The old creative um, differences. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But he was involved with so many of the massive projects. He was co-director of Toy Story 2. Um, he was co-director of Monsters, Inc. and Finding Nemo. So he really has been involved yeah. with the biggest projects in Pixar that is ever seen. So he's, he's really quite a titan in the industry. Um, so our respect goes out for that guy um, yeah no definitely did, did, did he have any involvement in the upcoming toy story 4 or is um, he kind I'm of not sure it didn't because that's been in production for a while exactly, yeah, yeah i mean this coming out this year i don't think he did i i didn't see anything on the article so um hopefully he's able to have a few years of uh, rest and solace after all the hard work he's done at pixar yeah that's fantastic um, that's the main thing to say at the beginning um now sort of slightly more um easy news i guess mission impossible seven and eight have already been announced to take place in 2021 and 2022 which is actually fairly surprising for them to be only a year apart um albeit sort of far in the future oh no i mean i'll have to concede i still haven't seen fallout but it's really good um, yeah it, it got amazing reviews and i really enjoyed it you know as a solid action film goes it really oh no yeah yeah, yeah. I, i'm looking forward to, at a certain point i do need to sit down and watch it because i've heard rave reviews it's had a sort of weird renaissance to mission impossible yeah films. that's in, right yeah. In, in that it's Since a very uh, ghost protocol yeah it's year. a very rare occurrence where middle way through this kind of franchise the films have actually picked up in quality so Rogue exactly. nation ghost protocol they've all mm-hmm. they both were fantastic and obviously you have the whole element of tom cruise going above and beyond each time with another new stunt <laughs> yeah. so that's that's really interesting I'm he, looking... he, actually, he broke his ankle i think during filming of uh fallout or Spain, old, or isn't he? He, there's one scene in the film they kept the cut where he sprains it and he like oh, wow. jumps across a building and smashes his ankle into the building it's like that um, bit with harrison ford in the force yeah. awakens yeah, didn't yeah. he like break a wrist or Possibly, something like yeah. that yeah, he's like had a lot of accidents yeah, yeah, with the crane crash as well yeah. um so we've also had a trailer for john wick 3 uh parabellum yeah. which i haven't seen yet but all i can say is that john wick is on a horse um which is very <laughs> exciting um for fans like a highway that. man exactly exactly um and anna hathaway is announced to lead uh robert zemeckis's the witches the remake of um, the Roald Dahl. The Roald Dahl. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, they're going again with that. I think, I think I saw the film from the nineties. I must have seen the whole thing um, all the way through. Oh, I've seen that from that time. That's a... It's quite disturbing. Yeah. Um. So I I wouldn't be surprised if they sugarcoat it a bit more. Um. But that's exciting. Um. And Disney are continuing their crusade of opening up the old can of worms of their old films, and they want to make a live remake of. The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah, with um, Josh Gad, is it? Quite possibly. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, like he, he's become a the, fan favorite. For that's Disney. the first name yeah. that really does come to your head when you think like something like that. Did you um 
one other thing I don't is um, have you seen the trailer for Far From Home? The oh, Spider-Man film because well, um, we spoke about we this. We just spoke about it last week yeah. about how we weren't sure about how they were going to incorporate the character of Spider-Man, who spoilers faded away into non-existence in yeah. the end of Infinity War. Um, so I haven't seen it yet, but I do know that Nick Fury is involved. Yeah, um, yeah, which is yeah. Also, this the same problem from Infinity War. Well, um, I guess people it's fueling suspicions about what happens to Iron Man Tony Stark after Endgame because yeah. he's not really the paternal presence that he was in the yeah, first yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. I think they're just like I said, I had those. Um, doubts about how they were going to advertise the film knowing what had happened to Spider-Man yeah. but they yeah. seem to just be going headfirst into it saying he's existing now and it's happening after mm-hmm. Endgame and it's not going to take away from the conclusion of that film because yeah. they probably have something un- you know out that they're going to pull out the bag that's going to shock you anyway yeah yeah exactly uh, but so yeah that's, that's the kind of main news I, I selected for this week um, no there's a, I think, a lovely I think bag of about, different stuff yeah, there yeah. the thing about Uncrich was the most affecting I suppose I didn't know much about him as a person um, but the fact that he's been involved with all of the most beloved projects um, of Pixar is, is a big deal no yeah no I, I always like moments of appreciation for people mm. who've stayed true to their craft and film and have yeah, developed yeah. a reputation maybe that isn't well known enough to a lot of audiences exactly, but yeah. which has had a massive impact on what they've enjoyed over yeah, yeah. the last 25 every years so often you, you just find an IMDb page of, of, of someone and it turns out they've been on like the creative team for hundreds and hundreds yeah of no definitely no especially idea. for like animators and even yeah. like writers that like you might be familiar with some of their other work but you don't know how much of a sort of yeah. you know guidance they've given to other films yeah, that you yeah, quite exactly. enjoy yeah uh, that's great a bundle of news thank yeah, you for that there you go. that's all right that's should okay. we move straight into stan and ollie let's go for it yeah uh i will keep to the tradition of me giving a summary because i, t- I took time to sit down and write this sum- summary i, I hope glad. it's quite eloquent good stuff um so the film as would be expected follows the story of the iconic comedy duo stanley laurel played by steve coogan mm-hmm. and oliver hardy played by john c Riley. both yeah. excellent uh, but more concretely, the focus here is on the sort of later post-war years of the duo, far flung from the peak of their success in sort of 1930s, yeah. golden age Hollywood era yeah. of pictures. Stan and Ollie find themselves embarking on what we will later discover to be a swan song tour of British music halls and small theatres during the 1950s. Uh, eager to use the tour as a means to fund a new film project that they hope will bolster their fame, Stan and Ollie look to put long-held differences uh, behind them nevertheless this proves far from easy and as smooth as their on uh, stage chemistry would suggest do you like that summary that is a fantastic thank summary you, very you. eloquently put yeah i sat I down i thought beautiful handwriting across oh. from me as well uh yeah so that's a brief <laughs> overview uh before anything else a few details directed by john uh baird which i don't know if you're familiar with him but he uh directed filth uh, with ah. James McAvoy, the um, I've been meaning uh, to watch Filth for a yeah, long time. Yeah, um, it's got a very appealing DVD cover art of the guy on the pig. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. It's um, not to speak too much about that fi- film. That's a sort of almost bizarre confusion of a film. It's it's a mess and it's a lot more adult. Mm. So it's kind of odd that he's decided to shift into this, but it has a much more wholesome yeah, regard. It yeah. is, but yeah. I mean, um, Laurel and Hardy are naturally a wholesome comedy duo yeah, as definitely. is. Definitely. But uh, the screenplay is also by Jeff Pope, who I don't know. Also, if you've seen Philomena, he was responsible for that script. Oh, okay. So that also yeah. stars Steve Coogan. So you can yeah. understand the collaboration yeah. um, on that front. So the main duo is, as, as I mentioned before, um, Steve Coogan and John C. Riley. Yeah. And I'm just curious to see your initial thoughts and we can sort of relay back and forth. Sure. Should we go for the clip first? We've got a little... Uh, Got a little piece of action from 
animals. Go for it. Let's go for it. Okay. Let's let's have a little one minute clip of them. Line that Robin Hood has about stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. There's a gag there somewhere, isn't there? Hey, the girl's gonna be waiting for us downstairs. Delphon wants us to meet these people from his no, charity. Never mind about them. They're not going anywhere. We just need to work through this just a little bit more. Hey, when is Muffin coming to see the show? He didn't say. He should have been here tonight. Went big tonight. That was a crackerjack, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. All right, all right. How, how about this? How about we tell Robin Hood, you've got it all wrong. You ought to steal from the poor and give it no, to the no, rich or something not, like that's that. That's not right. No, it's... Well, what is it? Well, all, all right. Okay. Oh, you got how about this? Okay, okay, how about this? That? Okay, I tap you on the shoulder and I say, uh, uh, Ali, I got an idea. How about we, we give to the poor by stealing from the poor? That way we cut out the middleman. That's it. That's it. All right. Stealing from the rich to give to the poor. Who ever heard of such uh, a ridiculous idea? Well, it's communism. Clip from uh, Stan and Ollie. I love um, that scene. It's a way. very funny like... scene in the film. Um, so I think that actually is a really good scene to use because it both sort of displays their charisma on screen together and their friendship and the way that they sort of bounce off each other in terms of working out a gag. Oh yeah, um, for sure. And this and this latent desire of making this Robin Hood movie that one of them in the film suggests calling Robin Good uh, <laughs> as a little pun on the title. Um, and uh, as far as I'm aware, Steve Coogan inhabits uh laurel just to a t i think um, i think both of them do it yeah, quite expertly yeah, yeah um i love their performances in this there's a kind of pitch perfectness to both their cadence and their embracing of these quite larger than life yeah. characters and yeah. that's not just applying to hardy yeah, and yeah. His stature i enjoyed their to and fro so thoroughly because not only did they embrace and lean into what this comedy duo represents but it, this film it feels almost quite emotionally light at the start yeah because that's, that's very true because yeah. it's an examination firstly of the professional slash personal relationship between laurel and hardy and even though it often seems quite circumspect about it but also in a good way it sets the stage for understanding why they do what they do and why later in the film they go above and beyond to make sure that they finish their tour because i think a good place to start like most films is at the beginning with a really um subtle but just delightful tracking shot that goes it was a very long take i was yeah. thinking about it when i'm watching the film it so it, yeah it starts um, when they're on this set for uh, hollywood film they're making yeah in 1937 so uh, most of the comedy. bulk of the film is actually in the 50s yeah. when they're older but this is a sort of little glimpse into when they're back to their yeah. prime and uh, uh, their black hair yeah no yeah and so they they do this tracking shot to start the film whereby they go from their uh dressing rooms to the stage of this western that they are um shooting i believe the western mm. when i was reading some of the reviews is way out west so it was like an accurate film that they did yeah make. sounds right sounds um right, yeah. and so they walk at quite a leisurely pace talking both about seeking pay rises for being the stars that they are and yeah. how they're kind of under the thumb of the production company but there's sort of differences in opinion whereby laurel sees his creative mind being not re well rewarded for uh the, the what he's producing for this mm. uh studio mm. whereas hardy is more concerned with just trying to make a bit more money and have his previous ex-wives off his back when it comes to alimony payment but i did really enjoy that beginning 
scene because it goes at such a leisurely pace. It made me, it reminded me of um, Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs biopic a few years ah, ago. Ah, yeah. Whereby yeah. most of the film is not really centred around um, the kind of presentations that he gives as the leader of... CEO of Apple, yeah. they're rather looking at behind the scenes, mm. and I thought this was a slightly more graceful depiction of that, yeah. where you're seeing two professional comedy actors slowly moving towards the set, and once they get to the set and the western that they're uh, performing in, they just go immediately into this really endearing dance number, yeah. which comes back later on. Yeah, I uh, think um, it definitely from the very opening shot, it 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 kind of ensures this familiarity that you have between the characters, and there's. A camaraderie that's fairly instant between mm. well the actors and Lauren and Hardy as you as you hope to see I suppose um, I think for me I wasn't sure if I was actually going to enjoy the film um, just because it was so wholesomely presented that I didn't mm. uh, I didn't know if I was going to like seeing a film with with no bite to it I suppose but that definitely changed and I I really did end up kind of buying it by the end um, but I do agree that it was a really subtly done take yeah, yeah. no I I, I I can completely understand that and I think part of what I think about when I'm assessing this film is that um, John Baird the director he has quite a light and genial touch for a lot of the film until the emotional undercurrent that mm. defines the relationship between Laura and Hardy becomes more apparent whereby they've had divisions in their past that we can elaborate on in a little bit but I, I understand that um it goes at quite a leisurely pace for at least the first 40 minutes. And, yeah. that, and I know that you said that you came out of the cinema or when we both came out of the cinema, which was uh, funnily enough um, filled with a more older clientele. Yeah, it was definitely an uh, older audience. Yeah, yeah, which was very sweet. But um, uh, when we came out, you were saying that you weren't sure for the first 40 minutes whether it was a film that you enjoyed or not because yeah. you didn't know whether this the kind of pace that they were going to go at and the mm. kind of dynamic, whether they were going to explore it any deeper mm. than it gives off the impression uh but i think they changed that a bit quite quite late into the well exactly that yeah. they definitely sort of i suppose in a sense changed the formula because they're um it's not so much breaking expectations because i think it's a fairly conventional film but at the same time it i, I think it sort of starts slowly um ramping up the the bittersweet attitude that it has because obviously as we said it the apart from the beginning it the main bulk of the film focuses on 16 years after this uh, shooting that course, Western yeah. film uh, in the 50s where they're touring Britain and they want to try and get funding for this Robin Hood film that they're going to do and neither of them are really certain about whether it's going to take place but so many of the scenes of them together when they haven't got anything else to do is talking about the lines in the film and talking about gags they can do and because it's so late in their careers and, and you're, you're, you're shown the uncertainty of their success with that film and, and with their tour in Britain, the fact that they're still so engaged with the same material and that they, despite sort of differences they've had in the past that also come up in the film, they can still just, just have these chats and, and laugh at their own jokes, basically. It's really endearing. Yeah, no, I, I, I like, I, what I appreciated the most about this is that in trying to gain an insight into what is behind the curtain of the professionalism of them yeah. being on stage, yeah. it, this, this film never lost the appeal and the kind of skill and charm of the comedy that Laurel and Hardy were known for. Mm. And it very much leans into it, both in the sense that there are scenes in this film that are obviously not on stage, but they still carry the same kind of physical comedy 
um, in them. Like the kind of slapstick element ah, leads yeah. into yeah. the into like into real life. Yeah, the yeah. everyday existence and life of um, those two men. And I think the fact that the film never goes to the point of saying their art and what they're known for mm. hasn't lost its appeal because part of what the film explores as much as their dynamic is where do you put these two former great stars of pictures pre-war in an environment that's maybe not has another generation that's not as familiar with them but yeah. still appreciate their comedy yeah. so about midway through the film you see that because their ticket sales are failing and they're only playing to half-field audiences mm, or even less or yeah. even less um their promoter says that they're going to have to do additional promotional work basically, for no basically extra advertising pay. yeah and yeah. A, another film might sort of take liberties and explore the way in which that doesn't work because they're faded stars but it is it does work they do get audiences back to them and i think that's important because that's never the focus of the film they're like talent or that or that going or is it ever a focus that um laurel or steve steve coogan's character as laurel is the sort of one responsible for most of their sketches and their gags like a, yeah. that's not really the point i and I, I i like that because other biopics might just go well let's just focus on that and the contentions mm. and then you you're so familiar with so many biopics that explore yeah, kind of. I think I think uh, I was gonna say as as we left cinema talking about this, I know that the the power of the empty seat is, is always a great tool to use. So I I'm someone who um I think I'm quite affected by basically failure stories, especially sto- stories about public figures, especially in theatre. Um, there's a show called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime that I recommend. Um, which has now got two seasons. I've only seen season one, but it's about a a Jewish housewife who realizes that she's a lot funnier than her stand-up comic husband um and after he bombs a couple of times and sort of leaves the scene pretty much um she kind of jumps in and takes her natural talent to the next level um and you see a couple of scenes both with the husband and her uh failing and bombing in front of the crowd um and it's really really painful second-hand um, embarrassment at its finest exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and it's not exactly the same with with Ron and Hardy, but but uh, what I mean is when you see a couple of scenes where they peek through the curtain and see the audience is, is not as full as they'd like it to be, to yeah. put it lightly, um, you, you really feel the disappointment. You, you really feel like um, they're scared that at some point that they're really going to fade into obscurity. Um, and there are a couple of moments for uh, Laurel, uh, which I, th- I think it's fair to say he is the focus of the real narrative. And even though hardy is is a massive part of the film i think that laurel is still he's focused on more um yeah i i I think it's the contention that exists between them insofar as what um laurel seeks in the film is not quite recognition but just an affirmation of what he's been capable of in the past coming to light now through continued success and you do have that element of him struggling to accept that and he eventually butts heads with Hardy, who's obviously, as I mentioned before, a larger-than-life character, but one who, before even the jokes themselves, just likes to be an entertainer. Mm. You know, he's um, someone who showcases his warmth and his charm through his performances. And I think the different understandings about what that means in a sort of world of things being commercialized is quite intriguing mm. Mm. it's something the film only glances at but it's something i think you can definitely read into yeah. on in 
on another viewing you know yeah. i think for me um just to focus on a couple of small scenes very quickly i was going to say with laurel there's a scene where he sees a poster of abbott and costello um, yeah. the, the very famous 50s duo um and he kind of sort of seems to realize oh is that does that mean that we're gonna fade into obscurity very soon and it's, it's actually got a funny parallel to oxford i think in that once you've left and finished your degree the turnover is so rapid and not that you're you know not important in that way but people will sort of slowly forget about that year of people yeah. because the people will come in and, and do the same thing and, and it, it's not the like they courses. didn't have the impact when they did yeah, were at the of top course. of their game uh, and they had such a long run and then also with with hardy this is one small scene where he reads a paper gets frustrated about what's in the paper basically mm-hmm. and then just sees a bunch of school kids and just gives them oh, a little yeah. wave and a little sort of cheeky smile and they sort of laugh and whatever and that's like i suppose um helps to back up what you say about hardy and the fact that he is someone who likes to entertain likes to be a friendly person and it comes through in like in life as well it comes through in the smallest of of instances not like big grand gestures yeah no, definitely. it just happens like small small moments that don't seem to have narrative importance but really flesh out the character no i i I totally agree and i think that um a film that wanted to make a clearer division would have tried to focus more on the fact that those kind of characters aren't what they are when they're off stage but Mm. it is very much that this bleeds into their existence and it's what makes it just compared to some of the other films that we've reviewed so far Mm a lot lighter and more of an enjoyable and definitely picture. easier to digest yeah know? yeah and although we want to talk about it a bit more there's um fewer levels to dissect i suppose and that's yeah. not a bad thing at all I, I don't think it means that it's not like thematically quite mm. strong mm. um or effective but i think that it knows what it is and it yeah, knows true, the audiences it's catering to i think what would be um ideal to do is explore more principally just for a brief amount of time the mm. kind of division that's at the center of the kind of conflict that exists in this film which is sure. you know the sort of i guess we should say spoilers but in a film like this I'm, I'm less inclined to say spoilers because i think your enjoyment comes not from discovering something which becomes very painfully yeah. apparent about it's much more by the emotional pain yeah. yeah so yeah. the reason that they begin with that tracking shot in the mid 30s mm. is because at that point that they're at the height of their popularity and they're probably at their closest now, then that immediately shifts to, as we said, the 1950s setting, mm. to which the bulk of the film is centred yeah. around. But there is an underlying latent sense that there is a kind of division that's recently been repaired between Laurel and Hardy. Mm. And that is very slowly, as I said, in an almost genial way, made known to the audience that um, Hardy went on and uh, did another picture with the studio that Laurel felt they were under the thumb of. Now, mm. they... By the beginning of the central conflict of the film, there seems to be an element that they've redeemed this. But when, and this is where I think the film shines at its best, Mm. when their uh, wives come join them on the British tour that they're on, that is when the film becomes really engaging to me because before I found it charming, but after that, their wives served as, I think it was Peter Bradshaw said that their wives served as their own ids because they were ah. saying all of what... Ah. It, yes, all I of agree, what, actually. That, all that's of what, a good way yeah, to put it. Cause... All of what Stan and um, Ollie weren't saying to each other because they wanted to push on with the, the tour, mm. their wives were like the ones reminding them, this is what happened to yeah. you guys between yeah. you had this massive falling out. And yeah. uh, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, what, it was really cool, yeah. What do you think of the uh, the two wives that we mentioned before? Yeah, you... I mean, actually, in the film itself, there's the kind of agent character who seems to be just a basically 
funny but just really evil corporate schemer. Yeah, he's he, he's like obsessively um, cordial about it, but yeah, he's quite yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he's really funny. And and he says himself um, when he observed the two wives in action, basically having an argument to comedy acts for the price of one. Yeah, um, yeah, because, for their wives. Yeah, yeah because it, it, it is definitely counterparts. Um, I think I agree in terms of um where it gets more engaging, um because there's both more comedy in how they play off, and you know, it, the the Lauren and Hardy sort of uh dichotomy will never get stale. Um, in terms of enjoying how they are together on the screen, but the fact that the wives come in as well and just give it the the the, the peak of novelty mm. for you to just have some fresh characters run in. So I suppose it's quite a rare instance of when not so much massive change comes, but when new characters a, a, arrive. Yeah, it yeah. feels like they've been there the whole time, and and no, no, it is it is is um, a very effective storytelling technique. Mm. Um, not to briefly go to diverge too much, but mm. There is a thing that Orson Welles used to say that um, he said to, I think, a fellow director, I can't remember who, but the very fact of referring to someone in the first act of a film mm. like quite consistently yeah. adds an element of how are they going to change up the status quo of what's existing sure. right now. Okay, yeah. So he, he referred to how he was in this stage performance. I can't remember the name of the play, but he played a character called Mr. Wu. Okay. Um, now everyone referred to what Mr. Wu thought he was going to think about what was going on in the story yeah. all throughout the first act, but he never turned up. Yeah. And they were like, oh, what will he think? What will he yeah. do? Um, and then right at the end, just before the intermission, he turns up, played yeah. by Orson Welles. Oh, okay. And immediately people go, wow, that's an amazing performance because of that element of having it like foreshadowed. The psychology of it, yeah. And yeah. to a much milder sense in this film, that is also kind of apparent because there are references and brief phone calls to the wives, but it's only at that middle point in the film does it, the central conflict become more effective and that charm and that veneer of professionalism mm. about their interactions mm. as two stage performers mm. becomes more challenged and that history gets pulled back up. Yeah, um, I think in real life, um, basically, uh, yeah, so when Hardy makes this, what's called the, the elephant movie, um, with a, a different Laurel um, to, to play Laurel with him, which is why they had this upset earlier um, in their careers. Um, in real life, I think there wasn't actually any beef, and and um, Stan Laurel sent them a you know good luck letter and everything. It didn't seem to have an issue with it. Um, so I don't I don't really have an issue with the what one might say is manufactured drama in the film because they I suppose have to have it somewhere. But I think when I was watching the film, I know that I've seen lots of comedy films where you do really really feel like the drama between the characters in the negative sense is really forced um, yeah so someone like 21 jump street i really really like as a film i think it's really funny mm -hmm. but looking no, back, I, I enjoyed look, looking back at it the 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 um conflict that arises in the second act for the resolution in the third act was a bit contrived yeah yeah, yeah. it contrives the word and, and even though um it might not be historically true in terms of what happened between the characters in lauren and hardy it didn't feel that way at all and and because you because you have this sort of strange uh, sense of you're not sure what's meant to be funny um, when they have this argument and one of them throws their hat down and another one throws a piece of bread at him, the audience sort of behind them in this party start laughing and this old guy says bravo yeah. and his wife says was that supposed to be funny yeah uh, and obviously it's not it's not for us so it's a kind of slightly odd moment because it's that classic thing of um you know uh, I think Robin Williams. Um, suffered a lot from from depression um and as a sort of entertainer and as a very charismatic person you would never kind of think that was true 
and, and you can if it makes sense it, it's really hard to remove the public veneer away from someone who is so public yeah yeah uh, of course for a duo for a duo that's so public as Ron and Hardy it's it's difficult to prise open the kind of their emotions to have more depth but I think that's what the film does manage to do oh yeah definitely and even just continuing that comparison with Robin Williams yeah they both both Laurel and Hardy and Robin Williams were comedians in the outlandish sense very mm. sort of theatrical um, yeah. and that adds another layer of kind mm. of you know a lack of clarity to understanding the true sort of motivations or thoughts behind the people carrying out that comedy and their true feelings yeah, yeah. and I mean so just I, I think that's really intriguing just relaying it a bit back to the wives in terms of how they have an impact into the film yeah well, if I because I have a few like as much as I'm speaking praises of this kind of charm yeah and I do have criticisms with the film in that the comedic elements of the wives while enjoyable when mm. I first watched them on reflection were actually kind of a bit hackneyed and I think it was they they were very much going for the stereotype of the of um, Laurel's wife being this sort of Russian puffed up sort of uh, she, yeah. she, she is a bit of a fish out of water yeah. but she's one that's taken to the Hollywood lifestyle that yeah, he's yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, achieved exactly. um, I think that I suppose the point was to establish since they only had half a film to do this for the wives, I mean, yeah. to establish the differences in character between them so that the, the the very small reconciliation that you see between them at the very end of the film, in the very, very last scene, is really much more touching. Um, I know what you mean. I think that the casting choices were odd. Um, I don't know how I feel about... Um, who, what's the actor again for Hardy's wife? Uh, what Manny Myrtle. Uh, yeah, God, we, I'm really forgetting names <laughs> yeah, today. Yeah, uh, yeah. Her name is Shirley Henderson. That's the one, Shirley Henderson. But we'll get it right eventually. Yeah. Um, not to say, I, I think they did a good job with the material. And I know that, um, for example, Komoda actually really liked the, the duo of the wives. Um, myself, I, yeah, I think I'm siding with you a bit more. Um, I, um, I know that also I'm not a, a huge fan of slapstick. I'm actually not a huge fan of the kind of comedy that Ron and Hardy do. But that said... The fact that you see the characters around those actions yeah. is is vital and does carry it for me. Oh, so. no, yeah, definitely. Um, I think so, uh, some of it can be boiled down to having and sort of modern sensibilities about mm. this kind of comedy as well. Yeah. Um, because I understand how, you know, the slightly outdated nature of slapstick comedy in most regards. I mean, it's very interesting. I think that, that now I... I much prefer comedic scripts than comedic action, unless it's unless it's extremely well choreographed. Um, but it, I do agree. It seems it seems that there was much more of an appetite for that kind of thing. Oh well, yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. Obviously, hardly existed. And I think that, that is days, a, so. that's a central concept of of the film and and what we were talking about about having these audiences are trying to rekindle that love. Um, mm. Before we get to like any criticisms, because I think we should go over a few because the film mm. isn't perfect. Um, yeah. Just on the top of what you were saying irrespective of your appreciation of the comedy mm. what i um had a lot of respect for was the diligence in the recreation of some of their most iconic um yes. sort of sketches yes. and yeah. moments in their films yeah. and even on just the sort of simplest level of saying this film was a homage to what they were able to achieve yeah. with their careers it's done with such pinpoint accuracy that's very much akin to not only the original, but the performances by Coogan and Riley in being able to carry it out 
Yeah. That I, I was deeply impressed by that on just a visual level. Mm. And the end of the film culminates as we find out um, Hardy continues on with the end of the tour despite mm. um, uh, failing health, uh, a poor or, or weakened heart, mm. and he has a kind of turn in the third act. Mm. He goes through with a dance at the end of their final performance, but that they worry might kill him. Uh, and it's a very strange sort of, it's a really, really oddly tense scene that's not play, it's not played to be um what's the word dramatic or, or tense for the audience to watch it and but um and it's meant to, and it's since it's the last scene in the dance it's very very endearing and and full of real love but there is this sort of real fear that you feel just because every so often you get a shot of hardy's sweating face yeah and you just is it gonna fall over is he gonna mess it up and or is he gonna die is he you gonna know die I mean? exactly and that really that that definitely made made it a even that one scene was made it the worthwhile experience of seeing the film because oh, it, it yeah. set up this poignant connection that that really really pays off. Yeah, so. for sure. And visually, that dance is just so. Oh, it's lovely. It's just yeah. lovely it's to really, watch. Really, really lovely. Not least because of just the use of lighting, like that you would find commonplace in a kind of musical of that mm. caliber, but also the use of shadows right at the end when you sort of see their shadows um, leap out onto the back. Uh, yeah sort of yeah. the backdrop of their stage um yeah. which i thought was really um sweet and endearing not least because it lent a kind of element of universality mm. to what they're trying to achieve which is fundamentally making their audiences yeah. laugh yeah uh, and i think they used um some original audio of lauren and hardy in that scene I oh think. did they really yeah. at yeah. the very end it sounded like they were kind of imposed some which was which is lovely that's well. that's yeah. very very sweet um despite that i think we should just very briefly talk very briefly, about some yeah. uh, criticisms the main one i have with it and mm. i can't tell if this is a deliberate thing or not is um the dialogue at times is just really really wooden and it's not very well thought through the script i think and i think it's just to make sure that the story is propelled oh yeah yeah frills. It's, it's, um, it's a matter of necessity more than anything and i became mm. aware of that midway through the film but there were moments in it, especially the moment where um, it's sort of Hardy has his turn, or, or more specifically, a heart attack, as we find out yes. later. Yeah. And there's a very poignant interaction that um, Laurel and Hardy, Stan and Ollie, have in Hardy's bedroom where he's uh, resting and he's, um, Laurel has brought him some eggs. Yeah. And, and it's very, very sweet interaction. And they're rekindling after they have this big uh, argument. Mm. But the way that they're talking to each other it has the kind of showmanship of when they would be on stage. Mm. And I can't tell if it's a combination of like confusion between the actors and sort of between the scenes, or if it's just quite hammy dialogue that's yeah. like needs to get the point across in a quite a brief runtime. Mm. I was thinking you'd say, you'd talk about the uh, scene where they have the argument, um, because I was thinking when I was watching that, that that was, that was, even though I've said before that I didn't feel like it was forced, the dialogue is a, it's a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I thought the reconciliation bedroom scene was okay. I think it has so many echoes to it that they have a sketch they do of, the, of Hardy is injured in this hospital bed, uh, and Laurel comes and gives him some eggs, and he doesn't want eggs, so Laurel starts angelically eating one yeah. um, to kind of to, to annoy him, I suppose. Um, and so it has those echoes with with the egg. Um, yeah, I mean th that scene, I, I can see why you didn't enjoy it as much. Uh, I think it, it at the stage of the film that it was it needed to happen so so i suppose there's some 
sort of inherent functionality to the script. But yeah, I, yeah, I, I think we, we're in agreement. And it's, 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 it's just a matter of, um, you know, kind of skill and subtly portraying that. I do agree that the first, their big argument is also quite stilted and a bit like, but I think they've emotionally earned it to the mm. point that you kind of just allow it to happen yeah. and you yeah. realise that yeah. things have to run their course. Yeah. Um, is there anything more to say? I don't think I so. I think that's pretty much it for no. me. Um, we should move on to our next segment um, just in a sec. But I think overall, um, like I say, it takes its time. It's not as long a film. And if it were any longer, I know that it would have dragged for me. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't I wasn't bored when I was watching it. But by the end, it really does have this emotional quality to it that that really does bring out this poignancy of, of not so much the fear of loss, but this sort of recognition um, that things are going to change and that life is... is uh, a circle and you, you're gonna have your high points and low points and eventually you're gonna um leave the world cool. um damn i know sorry yeah effect on you than you than yeah you i mean it, it, it definitely isn't a film about death at all but but there is that fear about hardy and 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 his and his passing i suppose at the end um but yeah it's it's by the end it's really affecting and i think it definitely um it, it gets what it it comes to get out of the audience i suppose yeah uh, yeah i I'm, I'm inclined to agree i see it fundamentally as an entertaining yeah and light-hearted romp in most regards romp is the word yeah that, yeah that very tentatively manages to sort of take a glance at human frailty and mm. and the foibles of, of growing up into later life when mm. you're an entertainer yeah so I, I enjoyed it. There we go. I yeah. had a lot. Of Can fun. recommend. Can yes, recommend. yes, definitely. Uh, definitely yeah. Sunday afternoon watching. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but anyway, we should probably move on to the next section. We should. But I'm going to make a very smooth transition. Okay, so m- moving go. from the comedic duo that is uh, Laura and Hardy, we are now going to talk about our favourite film duos in general. Absolutely seamless. Thank you. Let's Thank do you. it. <laughs> um, uh, do you want to start? I, so what I think we will do is we'll have two... Um, options each or two suggestions yeah. one is a favorite fictional duo in a film acting duo, yeah, yeah an yeah, acting yeah. duo yeah and another is um a creative team duo so that could be writer director two writers producers sound yeah anything. sound yeah, anything yeah. um all those things yeah so okay. do you want to go ahead and do your first one and then we can reel off some other suggestions afterwards. sure sure yeah. sure so i'll give my favorite on-screen duo i have so many Honourable mentions. I'll, I'll kind of reel through them very quickly. As a classic mention, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Of course. Um, with Paul Newman, Robert Redford, who's had his swan song as with um, The Old Man and the Gun recently. As, yeah. as you should film. probably do a review of that. Yeah, that is yeah, quite interesting. I, I want to see that if I can. Um, got John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson um, as Vega and Winfield in Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a classic one. For, so I'm going to cheat and, and do two. So I've gone for Wallace and Gromit um, <laughs> for, for that's a good on screen. One. Because... Um, if, I don't know if it's as much about sort of their, their interactions with each other, but um, seeing the evolution from a grand day out in, I think it was the late 70s, it's that old. Yeah, we need really, to check really a date on film. that. Yeah, I want to see those again. Um, all the way to A Matter of Loaf and Death from a few years ago, which is oh, not, yeah. it's a shorter affair. And, and I enjoyed it a lot more when I watched it the second time because I didn't think much of it when I first saw it. Um, those films are hilarious. They have so much heart. What's um, your favourite? Great question. I think it's probably the wrong trousers. Um, oh, that's so it's, good. It's really scared me as a kid. When, um, when we used to live in uh, Beaconsfield, uh, which I now moved back to, um, a long time ago, I think it was maybe about five or six, I think I uh, got a splinter on my thumb at this on this gate. Um, and 
so to cheer me up, um, my dad put on the wrong trousers, and the 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 evil penguin petrifies me. I've forgotten uh, Feathers McGraw. Is um, his name? Feather, Fe- Feathers McGraw. Did, you wow, did search yeah. that up. In, I'm, I'm, I didn't actually. No, 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 I'm actually good. really impressed with myself yeah. right now. And with his like um, the, 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 the rubber glove. Rubber glove, and so they have the posters that says, "Have you seen this chicken?" Um, <laughs> it's uh, that one is is really funny. I just think that um, I'm I'm constantly in utter awe about stop motion animation yeah. i think it's an incredible art um there's a lot of character that's put into the making of the of the puppets for one of a better i mean oddman is um, a very talented yeah exactly character. i mean chicken is also great um so i had that as my uh film do, you, do you want do you want to know what my favorite uh wallace and yeah, yeah of course is? yeah is it so is it the first one is the grand day out yeah. i think that might be my favorite mm-hmm. just for one moment it's the, that's the one where they go to the moon right that's the one yeah it's comedy gold, but when they go and get the beach ball and he kicks it up into the air <laughs> and it doesn't come back down. <laughs> you know, I could be six or the age that I am now or way into my 50s and I'd still find that yeah, hilarious. Yeah. That, it, has just... a, it has definitely an innate timelessness to it because of how much care was taken into the, I mean, to the characterization for want of a better word. Cheese, Gromit. <laughs> not even Wednesday, Dale. Um, those films are fantastic. Yeah, um, anyway. I, I was going to go for... Um, uh, second choice, but I'll, I'll leave it at that for those ones. Okay, uh, bab. We can go yeah. back to some a few more honourable mentions. Yeah, afterwards. I've got a lot. Yeah. Um, I will give my like favourite so- at the moment right now, and then mm. give a few honourable mm. mentions. Um, my one at the moment is currently uh Billy and Wyatt from Easy Rider. Um, okay. Ha- have you have you seen Easy I Rider? Haven't. Is that the um ah. Uh, Dennis Hopper one? Yeah, it's uh yeah Road De- trip. Dennis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I've probably spoken praises about it before. Yeah. Um. So basically, the reason that I enjoy that duo at the moment so much is yeah. the duo is obviously Billy and Wyatt, played by Dennis Hopper and Pete Fonda. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a film that, in of itself, is just kind of a drug fueled mayhem, like a race through or just a, a peruse through small town Americana mm. and beyond. And Billy and Wyatt, who's also Wyatt's also known as Captain America because he has a little Stars and Stripes motorbike. Um, <laughs> they are just these spaced out drug smuggling hippies that and this could be very easily a very quite cartoonish depiction mm. of characters such as that um but have such an embracingly strong disregard for what is thought of them and they're rebelling against the system that yeah. they fight they find themselves in that it's kind of just really really entertaining and really intoxicating and they kind the film easy rider was very important in developing a counterculture in mid america uh, mid 1960s america that this film is both pivotal in terms of film history and through the two main characters, and they make a wonderful duo. Mm. You should go watch it because the production around yeah. it was insane. I've heard, yeah, yeah it's, it's time, man. Yeah. Uh, so here is a few more additional honourable mentions that I have as well. Mm. Um, Jay and Silent Bob from Clerks yep. and More Rats nice. and other Viewerskew Kevin Smith productions. Mm. Yep. Um, I love Clerks and I love Chasing Amy and stuff like that, and mm. they they basically make cameo appearances on all of those and kevin smith is one of the characters he's silent bob mm. i love that um i'm, I'm sure you're going to agree with the next one i hope you are uh all of simon pegg and nick frost uh, uh, characters i was gonna put them as my honorable mentions at some the, point Ed, edgar wright's Canetto trilogy mm-hmm. so if i can remember this there's yep. sergeant angel and then whatever the officer nick frost plays then there's sean from sean of the dead yep. and then there's gary king from yep. world's end my favorite of the three interesting uh, i haven't seen world's end oh, i know so I good to, i know i need to a lot of people say it's the weakest of the three but i genuinely really enjoy mm. it that's a, a good honorable mention mm. in my opinion um han solo and chewbacca uh-huh. so harrison yep. 
Harrison Ford and Peter Mayhew. A, a true classic. That's yeah. that's cinematic royalty. You have to. You're obliged <laughs> to say that because it, it is. Before the um, so yeah. I also had Vincent and Jules from Pulp Fiction. Yeah. I think that's another one. Um, here's one. The dude, um, uh, Walter. Yeah. Uh, what is his surname? Sobchak. Sobchak. In Big Lebowski. Uh, in the Big Lebowski. Um, I guess you can kind of include Steve Buscemi's Donny character, but you know, considering his fate, <laughs> he's, a he, he's not really like yeah, yeah. the the duo. Um, that's a really important one because I think that feeds a little bit into who my favorite creative team is later. Uh, okay, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then a couple more: Wayne and Garth from Wayne's World. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, yeah, classic. And Wayne's World too, of course. Yeah. And uh, last one is. Um, Oh, Jim, Jim Carroll. God, my writing is terrible in this. Jim Carroll and Mickey from the film Basketball Diaries, which ah. was one of the first feature uh, films that Leonardo DiCaprio starred in alongside Mark Wahlberg. Okay, so yeah. uh, Jim Carroll, uh, it's like a semi-autobiographical look into his life of drug addiction and um, how those two characters as the film's main central to uh, succumb to more rampant drug addiction and they squander their opportunities to be quite great basketball players mm. uh so that that's a great film watch it at your own leisure but mm. that that's a good one for early leonardo dicaprio mm. films mm. that earned him his his reputation uh should we move on to cr- sort of creative teams you can go first sure, okay one. um I, w- I was just gonna give a couple of honorable mentions for oh. the film doers as well oh yeah no go for it go i'll, for I'll it. literally just reel them off now um so i've gone for um shrek and donkey in shrek <laughs> a-, a classic indeed um brad pitt and morgan freeman in seven um, I think is really, really well done. Um, that's that's not a duo I'd think of possibly originally. Why, but possibly my 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 favorite Brad Pitt role. He's this very reckless character that that meets a terrible fate, I suppose. You're really um, on a David Fincher wave. At the oh, moment, I mean, Fincher is my favorite director at the moment. Yeah. Um, and then I also went for Brad Pitt again and Edward Norton in Fight Club. Mm. Um, they Tyler have a Durden special, and, yeah. and the narrator. The narrator, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. a very special relationship they have. And I um, Brad does Pitt that count is, as a duo? For our purposes, it does. <laughs> Go watch Fight Club if you haven't. Yeah. Um, and we can't talk about that film any longer because it's against the rules. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, finally, I went for uh, Donnie Darko with Jake Gyllenhaal as really young um, as the titular character and the bunny, uh, Frank. Um, and that film is, it's actually a really funny film. And I was watching a video about it recently that I'll try and find a link in the description about how the film works, not just because it's a sort of weird sci-fi thing, but also that it has a massive criticism of... Um, of a sort of upper middle class suburban America yeah, yeah. Um, where it tears down these sort of false idols of these teachers who are very self-righteous all these things and uh, I see a lot of parallels between that film and American yeah. Beauty and, and the one line that always sticks with me from that film is the bunny just confronting uh, Donnie and saying I can do anything I want and so can you yeah and 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 we find out that is true because so many strange things happen so that it, it, it's simultaneously a really dark film that it has this strange, compelling allure um, of, of darkness in it, but also uh, has a lot of lightness to it as well. Um, so that's um, films that I went for. Um, oh, fantastic. So should we just, from the top, just get the ones that we said that were our favourites? So mine sure. was Billy and Wyatt from Easy Rider, mm-hmm. and yours and mine was, was Wallace and Gromit. Um, fantastic. The theme tune is just banging. Of course it is. <laughs> I mean, we won't sing it now. We don't have the vo- Well, I don't have the voice for this, so you can... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I back myself. I, I won't do it now, but anyway. <laughs> maybe um, maybe for the bloopers. How but... about you give your off-screen favorite duo now? Okay, all right. I shall. Got a nice full notebook. Yeah, I, 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 I really should have organized this a little bit better. <laughs> but my favorite sort of off-screen favorite create. I'm gonna give a few. 
because it's, I it's have really, a few. It, I have four or five. Yeah, it's so it's really hard to yeah. um, to come up with one. Yeah. Um, at the moment, and I think this relays a little bit back into what we were talking about with Spider-Man last week, mm-hmm. is um, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. I respect them a lot as both directors in animation yeah. and who have made quite successful forays into comedy with yeah. 21 Jump Street yeah, and yeah. et cetera yeah, yeah. like that. Um, I won't speak too much about them because I know their praises are spoken highly other than the fact that I would really like to see their original version of the Han Solo film because uh, midway yeah, through... Much, Solo was very much a butchered project. Yeah, yeah, much like the Pixar um, uh, animator that you referred to earlier. Yeah, the young creature. Yeah. yeah. Um, they he, they left over creative differences, which, ah. like I said, is always code for. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was really intrigued because obviously we had the Ron Howard film that eventually came out and it didn't really live up to standard mm. for me. Yeah. But um, that is just one thing I'd like to mention for them because I think in terms of con- right now in the sort of contemporary film climate, they're quite big mm-hmm. and there's a reason for it. Uh, Favourites of all time, I will briefly refer back to one of the films I was referring to in the honourable mentions is Big Lebowski, so obviously the Coen brothers. brothers yeah. They're probably one of the first names that comes to a lot of film lovers in terms of a very effective duo mm-hmm. who choose a f- uh, very wisely when one should lean into more of the writing and one the directing, mm-hmm. as you'll see across their filmography. Yeah. Um, in terms of one that I've re- resurgence in appreciation for them, currently I'm doing a module in film history British film history mm-hmm. uh, so we've had to look at a lot of uh, Powell and Pressburger so Michael Powell yeah. and Emmerich Pressburger mm. uh, who were one of the most effective creative teams in creating uh, quite decidedly modern films in both the war climate and the post-war yeah. climate yeah. so they made uh, such excellent films as like Black Narcissus and A Canterbury Tale and so many other things that I can list on forever. <laughs> but the point being is I have an appreciation for them as a creative duo because I feel like they represented quite a modern departure from films that previously came, especially in the 1930s and mm. document- nice. documentaries. Yeah. But that is what, I, if I had to choose one, I'll say Phil Lord and Christopher Miller for now. That's but, okay. um, Good choice. You give me yours. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, very quickly, Coen Brothers as well was a uh, mention for me. Um, the most recent film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which mm-hmm. is on Netflix, um, so you can watch it free. Um, it's That's really, really fun, uh, that movie. It is a very strange anthology, um, but definitely worth seeing. Um, as far as director-cinematographer kind of um, go together, I've gone for Denis Villeneuve and Roger Deakins. They haven't worked together very, very often, but they've gone uh, prisoners together, uh, and Sicario. Um, All great films. And Blade Runner 2049, which is also fantastic. Um, Prisoners, I think, is possibly the most disturbing film I've ever seen. It's it, it, merciless. Re- it, it's, it's, it has a, a serious punch to it um, because there's just this, the grim hopelessness of the world that it creates and, and the, the, the enemy's motivations in the film are, are just soul-crushing. Um, so that's a... Uh, and and Deacon's finally managed to get his Oscar for cinematography after 13 nominations, as nice. I mentioned last podcast, for the uh, Blade Runner Well sequel. deserved, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, as a classic mention, of course, Spielberg and John Williams, um, yep. they've made a lot of very famous films together. So I think my uh, favourite of their of that duo is probably Indiana Jones, because that, that mm-hmm. theme is fantastic. Um, 
And now I had to choose between two as director and soundtrack writers. Um, so I went for my favourite as Lynn Ramsey and Johnny Greenwood. Um, they have done two amazing films. We need to talk about Kevin. Um, oh, which I love that. That Tilda film Swinton is, really, is excellent. Oh, that. She, she's fantastic. Yeah. Is, and is it? It's yeah. Tilda Swinton and Ezra Miller in that film, and John C. Riley as well as the dad. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Who who features in that's a party. nice tie-in. Um, yeah. So Lynn Ramsey is a great director. Oh, sorry. Also, uh, you were never really here uh, with Joaquin Phoenix. Um, she did that as well. Uh, and so she did both those films with Johnny Greenwood, the multi-instrumentalist um, genius from Radiohead, who the band of which I'm currently a big fan of. Um, that that's a really good time because yeah. um, we're planning to have a show maybe later in the term with one of the controllers here at Offside Radio where mm. we can talk a bit more in depth about the kind of collaborations between yeah filmmakers yeah, yeah. and their and their composers and those who make the iconic schools that we know today. Yeah, I'm excited for that. And my final mention for this will be uh, David Fincher and uh, brackets Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross um, who made soundtracks for. Um, the social network which i mentioned last yeah, yeah. week speaking um, its praises and gone girl uh, which has has similar darkness to it uh, as in terms of the soundtrack this sort of um very 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 subtle um but well threaded through the film um little melodies um so but i'm gonna have to give it to ramsey and greenwood because the the scores they managed to make are so so well fitting for the films those two films are very well crafted and they, they have this very daring sensibility about both of them because they're both very of course yeah, yeah. difficult to no 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 i i can completely see how you got to mm. uh, that conclusion so our favorite creative duos for me would be phil mm. lord and christopher miller and for you uh i'll probably go for being evan deacons actually yeah fantastic okay i okay. think we should probably wrap it up there yeah remember we have to keep to the tradition of recommending uh, of course of so course. um i can go first if you want go for it my film this week, which lends very much into the module I'm doing, um, is uh, The Way Ahead. With uh, It's a Carol Reed film from 1944, I want to say. Okay, back. <laughs> it, yes, yeah. It's um, a war propaganda film that I know a lot of people turn off immediately when they hear that. But it, <laughs> it, it, it tells the tale of this disparate group of men from all over England who join up um, or are called up through conscription mm -hmm. and then form this very tightly organised unit that learn to you know, appreciate each other and collaborate and then earn the respect and appreciation of their uh, chief officer who initially they have reservations about okay. and they, if I'm not mistaken are stationed somewhere in Africa during the war but the film decidedly chooses not to focus that much on the warfare or them engaging yeah. in it up until near the end. They're, they're stationed often back in camp or they go on leave before they carry out yeah. the mission by the yeah. end of the film. But yeah. I really love Carol Reed as um, a director. I, I love mm. um, The Third Man. It's like one of my favourite British films of all time mm -hmm. and a lot of people's. But I, w I watched that again as part of my module, mm. and I think it's a film that's so enduring in British cinema and British war cinema that anyone who's interested in that part of the history okay. and the development of a lot of film techniques that are yeah. used quite effectively here, yeah. go check it out. The Way Ahead, Carol Reed, 1944. Fantastic. I think. <laughs> awesome. That's a really interesting choice. Okay, I'll go for mine now. Once again, I'm going to cheat. Um, I, I, I was going to choose Roma this week, um, the new film by Alfonso Cuadón that um, 
debuted at, uh, very late last year, 2018, um, which is utterly stunning. It's it's fairly long and it takes a long time for you to get sucked in. Um, but the main focus of the story is on um, Cleo, this housewife working for this family. And it is a real emotional powerhouse. It's on Netflix. Please, please watch it. I was going to choose that, but I'm going to talk about The Raid and The Raid 2. Um, I'm taking them together because, you know, they're sequels, so I'm allowed to cheat a little bit. The first film, The Raid, is basically um, an Indonesian martial arts bloody action film with a Welsh director by Gareth Evans. If that hasn't also already... Godzilla. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If that hasn't give, already appealed to you, then I don't know what to say. But um, it, the first one is basically just a tower block raid by this police um, special forces, people who were who given this task of taking out this drug lord in this apartment block, basically. Yeah. Um, very similar to Dread in 2012. That's, um, a, that's a really good reboot. I like yeah, it with um, and Carl Urban. I yes, the one, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the raid came the year before, so I guess it gave us some inspiration, I suppose. Um, yeah, of course. Possibly. And um, so the first one is, it, it kind of turns into almost a survival horror in that they have, they're basically found out to be in the building and the drug lord says, right, anyone who kills these police people will have free accommodation forever, basically. Um, and it turns into this fighting fest so um Iko Weiss who is the uh, main star of the film is um an expert in um Indonesian martial arts and it shows the choreography in the in these films is the best choreography Stunning. for fighting I've ever seen in my life um the second film is, is very different it's much longer and it's more sort of a crime espionage sort of thing where, where the same character has to go undercover go to prison and basically has to start working for a crime family to work out who is corrupt in the police force. Um, so he can tell the person he's now working for who works with other police, rooting out corrupt police. Yeah, um, yeah. And that the Raid 2 has the best fight sequence I have ever seen uh, in this kitchen. Uh, I won't say much more about those films, um, but they're basically, if you like um, very, very, very well done martial arts and very inventive fight scenes yeah. with a lot of thought taken as to the scene in which you are so the first one obviously corridors and the second one with just explosive car chases and knife fights um then go for those i they're just great no that's a great recommendation <laughs> yeah. and in you know in a midst of a lot of mediocre um fight choreography mm. it is refreshing those films yeah are it's a real hidden gem go you, for those. you see a lot of inspiration in things like daredevil these days mm. and, and often even how like old boy uh old boy the 2003 film might have inspired certain like innovations in choreography about taking you know one takes and etc like that mm. um all were completely other discussion for another episode of course uh, one thing i will say which i forgot to say at the top of the episode is a big thank you to my uh roommate and friend our friend peter hammerton peter yeah for doing both our intro and our outro which you will hear in a minute the most glorious twenties uh, voice you'll hear in of, your life of course we thought he'd make a perfect um introduction to our show so a big thank you to him I think we should wrap things up there. We should indeed, yeah. Thank you, Tom, as ever. That was a great episode. Thank you, Matthew. That was uh, fun. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Goodbye. And good night. You've been listening to Oxide Film. Thank you and good night.